My name's John Redmond from First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas, and I want to thank you for joining us today on Peace by Believing. And I'm praying today's program will be a real blessing to you. I heard a statistic recently that really surprised me, and and here's what it says. It says that 23% of Americans are now identifying themselves as having no religion at all. That's an amazing statistic. It's the first time in our country's history that the quote, non-religion crowd or non-religious crowd has been the largest part of the study. In other words, there are a lot of Catholics, a lot of evangelicals, but now 23% of the uh, country are saying they have no religious background. And statistics tell us that if it keeps going like this in the next four to six years, that number will just keep getting larger and larger. And and sadly, one day, that could actually represent the majority of people living in the United States. Now, today, as you're listening to this program in your car, in your home, wherever you might be, you might be in that 23%. You may think to yourself, you know, I just don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. I, don't, I just don't believe any of that. I have no religious affiliation. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you to listen to this message with an open mind. And let's just see if God might speak to you today through this message. And God might get you to reconsider uh, your non-religious affiliation. I pray the message will be a blessing to you. I want to make three statements this morning in this message. The first thing I would say to the non-religious group is simply this. There's no book like the Bible. Now, to our people, if you believe that, say amen. There's no book like the Bible. You know, the Bible is an amazing, amazing book. It has the power to predict the future. Keep in mind, the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents with one central message, and that is God loves you, and through His Son, Jesus Christ, He has provided a way for you to be in relationship with Him. You say, John, I know the New Testament teaches about Jesus, but is there anything in the Old Testament that would teach about Jesus Christ? I thought we didn't read about Jesus until the New Testament. That's why I'm saying there's no book like the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came to this earth, we read prophecies, we read predictions, we read things about Jesus that would happen, that did happen, and that some will yet happen, and it makes the Bible the most amazing book in all the world. Did you know there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the birth, life, death, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus Christ. And with the exception of the promises about the second coming, all of those prophecies have been fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies, most of them have already been fulfilled. Let me just give you some examples. You might want to jot some of these verses down. In Zechariah chapter 9, in verse 9, it says that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's what happened on Palm Sunday. Jesus came into the old city of Jerusalem riding on that donkey, and the people began to sing and say, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Isaiah 53 and verse 3, we read that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be despised and rejected by men, and he was. Psalm 41 and verse 9, we read that he would be betrayed by a friend, and he was indeed betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, his betrayer would receive 30 pieces of silver. And that's exactly what Judas got for his betrayal. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 8, we read that he would suffer for our sins. There are multiple, multiple prophecies in that passage. Isaiah 53, 9, he would die with the wicked and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He was. He died between two criminals, convicted criminals. And he was buried in a rich man's tomb. In Psalm 22 and verses, well, for example, in Psalm 22 verse 1, we read where David said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, Jesus said those same words. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It was a psalm written in the year approximately 1000 B.C., a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. King David is making prophecies, predictions about the Messiah, and they've all come to be fulfilled. For example, he said in verses 7 through 8 that, that the Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed, and he was. In verse 16, he said, that he would be crucified, and he was crucified. It says in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. What's interesting about that prophecy is when David said that, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. Most people would say it was the Persians who invented crucifixion. Some go back farther in history and say, no, it was the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians, and finally the Romans perfected crucifixion. But even if crucifixion was invented as far back in history as by the Assyrians. That was after the time of King David. David was predicting something as far as a crucifixion when the world didn't know what crucifixion was. In Psalm 22, verses 17 through 18, the Bible says they would cast lots for his clothing, and they did. And so the Bible... Is, is, is an amazing book. There's no book like it because in the Old Testament you have prophecies made that would one day happen that in fact did happen. In fact, in the New Testament, there are 15 different either quotations or allusions back to Psalm 22. It caused some within the early church to refer to Psalm 22 as the fifth gospel. For some in the early church, they had Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Psalm 22, because Psalm 22 was so loaded with information about Jesus Christ. Let me give you another verse to write down in Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 46. And also in Numbers chapter 9 and verse 12, it says that not one of the Messiah's bones would be broken. And it wasn't. We read in John chapter 19 and verse 36 that not one of his bones was broken. And so the Bible is an amazing book because it predicts things and then those things come to pass. It's interesting. Somebody has done a study and said that the odds of one person fulfilling even eight of those Old Testament prophecies. Now remember, I've said there are over 300 Most of them have already been fulfilled, but the odds of one person fulfilling even eight of those prophecies would be one out of ten 
to the 17th power. Now, those numbers just stagger my mind because we're talking about 10 to the 17th power. That's the, letter, the number one and then a lot of zeros after that. But it's very remote chance that it would ever happen. There was a mathematician, a statistician, a statistician named Peter Stogner who tried to put that in perspective for us today. In other words, he's saying the numbers say that the odds of one person fulfilling only, one, only, one, only eight of those prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. He said, think of it this way. He said, think about if, if it were possible to cover the state of Texas from border to border, border to border, with silver dollars, and you put those silver dollars two feet high. So you've got silver dollars all the way across the state of Texas, and they're two feet high, and on one of those silver dollars, you put some kind of a marking on it, and then you lay that silver dollar down with the marking facing away from what you could see. So the markings on the bottom of that silver dollar. And then you helicopter somebody right into the state, center of the state of Texas. And so there he lands in the middle of all these silver dollars. And you say to that man, you can go anywhere in the state of Texas, north, south, east, or west. And whenever you see the coin that you want to pick up, remember one of them has a marking on the back. Whenever you see the coin that you believe is that coin, reach down and pick it up. And Stogner says, here's what 1 in 10 to the 17th power means. It means the odds of one person fulfilling eight of those Old Testament prophecies that many hundreds of years in advance would be the same as that man helicoptered down, reaching over, picking up a coin that had the marking on the back. It's just almost impossible. And yet Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. He has fulfilled close to 300 of the prophecies that have been made, and he'll fulfill the rest of them when he comes the second time. And so I would say to that person who says, I really have no religious interest, I have no religious inclination, I would say you should consider the Bible because there's no book like the Bible. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that the Bible is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You think we can say that together? It is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible is living. You know, the Bible has life to it. I, I read a lot of books, and I'm sure you do too, but there's no book like the Bible because this is the only book that has life in it. You know, you can almost put your thumb on the Bible and feel the pulse. I mean, it's just that real. You could almost expect to, when you see the Bible that it would just start breathing. It's that much life. I was thinking this morning before I came to church, I thought, you know, the Bible has so much life to it. I wouldn't be surprised one Sunday up here preaching if the Bible just stood up on its own and started flying across the room. Now, that'd wake some of you up right there, wouldn't it? If the Bible started flying. Now, what's happening around here? Well, it could do that because the Bible has life. It has power to predict the future. And that's what the Old Testament is. It is a prediction of things that had not happened when it was written that came to pass hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. There is no book in all the world like the Bible. Not only does it have power to predict the future, it has power to convict the lost. There's something about the Bible when it is read, preached, quoted, referred to. There's power in this book to convict people who need to be saved. There's just an, an intrinsic power in the Word of God. And certainly it has power to speak to us. We've all had the experience in life. Just opening our Bible for our daily Bible readings. Maybe we don't have this experience. It's certainly probably not every day. But often we've had the experience where we're reading something 
And what it says on that particular day is just exactly what we needed to hear. Someone has said, we can read a lot of books in life, but the Bible is the only book that reads us. And it speaks to us because it is living, it is alive. And so I would say to that 23%, first of all, think about the Bible. There's no book like the Bible. The second thing I would say to that 23% is this. Think about Jesus. Just think about Jesus. I would say to them, I know you don't believe in Jesus. Or I know you've not made your mind up about Jesus. But just be open-minded enough to consider Jesus. There's no person in all the world like Jesus Christ. Christ. They would say in response to that, now what do you mean? What makes Jesus so unique? Well, part of it we've already seen. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection was all prophesied in the Old Testament. Not only that, he was born of a virgin. That makes him unique. He was sinless. He lived 33 years on this earth, and he never did anything wrong. He never disobeyed his parents. He never got in a fight with his brothers and sisters. He never spoke an untrue word. He never did anything wrong. He never had an immoral thought. He never used bad language. Jesus never did anything wrong. He was spotless. He was pure. He was perfect. And yet one day, Jesus took, when he died on that cross, he took the sins of the whole world, and those sins were placed on him, and he, on that cross, paid for our sins. That's what the crucifixion is. Somebody says, well, the crucifixion is a picture of God's love. Well, it is a picture of God's love, but it is also Jesus Christ paying the debt for our sins. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible also says the wages of sin is death. We have to pay for our sins. And the price is high. It's death. That's bad news. But the good news is Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay for our sins. You think about everything that you've ever done wrong. I think about everything I've ever done wrong. Long ago, not so long ago. I mean, all the sins. And even sins we've not even committed yet. Sometimes you'll talk to somebody and you'll explain to them that when they get saved, Jesus forgives all their sins. And they say, well, I understand when I got saved, Jesus forgave all my sins that I had committed before I got saved. But how about the sins I've committed after I got saved? I think that's what most of us struggle with. We know that when we got saved, he forgave all of our sins. But what about these sins we've committed since we got saved? Well, think about this, friend. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, all of your sins were yet in the future tense. And so when he paid for those sins and he said it is finished, he was talking about sins that you would, all, you would commit and you weren't even born yet. So don't make a distinction between post-conversion, pre-conversion and post-conversion sins. From the perspective of the cross, they were all future. And when you received Christ... He forgave all those sins. Now, certainly when we sin today, we break fellowship with God and we have to ask Him to forgive us so that that intimacy can be restored. But nonetheless, He has paid for our sins. He has taken our sins upon Himself. And not only that, I want to share something that I never knew until last week when I was preparing this sermon. You may already have known this. But not only did Jesus take our sins... But as Jesus was going through this process of crucifixion, he refused to take any sedative that might have been given to him or that actually was given to him so that his pain could be lessened or his mental state, he could kind of be zoned out. He refused to take any sedative. Now, I want to show you something. Go to John chapter 19. This is very interesting to me. 
Because in John 19, Jesus is on the cross. He is only moments away from dying. And this is when he made the statement, I thirst. You know, there are seven things Jesus said on the cross during those six hours. And one of the things he said was, I thirst. And in John 19 and verse 28, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And so right here at the end of Jesus' time on the cross, he was very thirsty. He was dehydrating. He was suffocating. And he said, I thirst. And they offered him up on a sponge some wine. The wine would not have fully quenched his thirst, but just a little taste of any liquid would have helped a little bit for Jesus. So he received that, and then he said it's finished, and then he died. Now, Go back to Matthew chapter 27, because the part I've just shown you, I don't think that's new to most of us. I think we knew that happened. But in Matthew chapter 27, I was reading this last week, and I thought, I've never seen it. I always thought when Matthew described Jesus being offered wine, he was just describing the same thing that John had described. I just thought, well, this is Matthew's version of the same event. But this is something completely different. We find that in the crucifixion process... Jesus was offered wine twice. At the end of his life, he took just a little bit of that. But at the beginning of his time on the cross, or getting ready for the cross, he refused it. Look in verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine. Some translations may just say wine. They gave him wine, but watch this, mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Now, remember, in John's gospel, they offered him up this wine, and he received it. But here in Matthew, once he tasted it, he would not drink. Now, look in verse 35. Then they crucified him. And so Matthew is telling about an experience Jesus had not on the cross, but an experience Jesus had before he got on the cross when they offered him this wine mixed with gall. You say, well, John, explain this. What does all this mean? Well, back at this time when they were using crucifixion as a form of capital punishment, it was not uncommon for the criminal to carry the horizontal beam to the cross just like Jesus did. That wooden beam weighed approximately 100 pounds. In fact, we read that that weight was so heavy and Jesus was so weakened from having been beaten so much by the Romans that he fell beneath the weight of the cross. And another person, a man named Simon from Cyrene, he had to carry that cross for Jesus. But when Jesus got to his execution site... Sometimes we think they crucified, they put the nails in the hands and feet of the criminal when he was up on the cross. No, they did it on the ground. The vertical beam would have been laying on the ground, and then they would have attached the horizontal beam to the vertical beam, and then the criminal would have received the nails for his hands and feet while he was laying down, and then they would pick the cross up 
and they would drop the cross in a hole that had been dug for this reason. And you can imagine after you'd had the nails in your hands and feet, when that cross was just dropped down, how flesh would, it would just the agony of that would be excruciatingly painful. And yet Jews had a practice. They didn't do it for every person who was being crucified. They did it sometime. They would offer the person about to be crucified wine, but what does it say here? Mixed with gall. What was gall? Gall was a narcotic. It was somewhat of a sedative. And so the Jewish people thought, this is one of our brothers being crucified, and so out of mercy, we should at least offer him some, some kind of a sedative so that even though he's still being crucified, he would be out of it and wouldn't have to feel the pain. Now, they didn't do it for everybody, but they did it for some. And the Romans were not objectionable to this because in their mind, they knew that if a criminal had been sedated, that as he was there on the ground being crucified, that if he's drugged, if he's under the influence, if he's sedated, he's not going to be fighting and resisting and struggling. So it was much easier for the Romans to actually drive the nails in the hands and feet if the criminal had been sedated. And so on this particular occasion, somebody within the community here offered Jesus this wine that had been mixed with gall trying to sedate him. Well, as soon as Jesus tasted that, he refused it. And he said, I don't want that. And I think, Here's, I was saying this last week, and I thought, would it have been wrong for Jesus to have taken the sedative? And I think the answer to that question is no. There's no sin in taking a sedative. I guarantee you tomorrow, if you're scheduled for an operation, you're going to take the sedative, right? And I always have too. I, if I'm going into the operating room, I just want as much as they can give me, so I'll be out. So it was, there, there would have been nothing sinful for Jesus to have taken this narcotic, to have taken this sedative, it wouldn't have been sinful at all. So the question is, why didn't Jesus take it? Well, Jesus, as he was being killed, chose to face death with his mental faculties clear. He, he chose to face death with an unclouded mind. And he knew that if he allowed a sedative to come into his body that would zone him out or make him, you know, where he didn't know what was going on, that once he got up on that cross, he wouldn't be able to minister to people who had needs. Now, you think about Jesus. First of all, when I say there's no person like Jesus, there's nobody in the face of the world who would suffer what Jesus suffered for sins he never committed. So we just stopped right there. We say there's nobody like Jesus. But to even strengthen this point, to think that Jesus is the only person in the world who was offered a sedative who would refuse it so that he could help others while he was dying on that cross. Jesus, who knew, knows everything, he knew that after he'd been on that cross for a few hours, one of those thieves who would be crucified next to him would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he knew that one of those thieves would turn to him and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus knew that if he became sedated, he knew that if he were drugged, he knew that if he were out of it, he would not be able to save that man. And you talk about unconditional love. You talk about love that says, not only am I willing to die and pay the penalty for everybody's sin, I am willing to be aware of the pain. I am willing to stay conscious through the whole experience so that through my consciousness, I can extend salvation to someone who's going to need it right at the end of his life. There's nobody in the world like that. 
And that's what I would say to that 23%. I would say, listen, I understand you have no religious leaning, but you need to understand that Jesus Christ is unlike any other religious leader. Jesus is God in the flesh, and Jesus has taken your sin. He's paid the price for your sin. And not only that, Jesus has refused. When he died, he refused any sedative just so he could save that one person who was going to call out for salvation. And you think, I would say, if Jesus would do that for that person, think what Jesus would do for you in your situation. Remember the first thing I would say? There's no book like the Bible. There's no person like Jesus. And then the third thing I would say is there's no life that God cannot change. There's no life that God cannot change. You might be here today and and thinking, well, man, there's some things in my life that need changing. And maybe for you it's not the, the, you know, just horrible sins that need to be changed. But you just think you're not joyful. You don't have any peace. You You don't have any happiness or excitement about life. And you just think... My life needs to be changed. I want to say to you today, on the authority of God's Word, there is no life that God can't change. Well, we're going to have to stop right there for today because we're out of time. But kind of to summarize everything, I just want to to remind you today, there's no book like the Bible, there's no person like Jesus, and there's no life that God can't change. And today, if you would like a change in your life, what do you have to lose? Why not reach out to Jesus Christ, asking Him even now to come into your heart to forgive your sins and make you a Christian? If you'll do that, He will indeed come to live in your life. He will indeed change you from the inside out, and He will make you a brand new person. Thanks for listening to us today, and I hope you have a great rest of the day.